0: Here, here, share with me. That's
1: all right. Yeah, we're we're good. We're good. Okay, so tell us how you first met your wife.
0: Oh, yeah, this is not good because I don't remember. Um, No, we we both ran cross country in college, and so actually we got our freshman years, we arrived on campus two weeks for our preseason, and so uh, I met my wife two weeks uh, before our freshman year of college, and then we... Yeah, we ran track and cross country together for four years.
1: Who's faster, you or
0: Me by a margin.
1: Okay. All right, good. What is your preferred Bible translation?
0: Ooh. Um, okay. So, uh, usually when I'm, I'm sp- speaking and teaching around the United States, I use the NIV 84. That kind of seems like an average. I particularly enjoy the Psalms and King James, just for the poetic nature of it. Sometimes when I'm... Um, Studying, I get a kick out of the NET, the New English Translation, because it includes the translation notes, and that's helpful to me sometimes. But yeah, NIV, ESV, in that kind of range would be sort of the middle ground there.
1: All right. What was your most interesting college course, either undergraduate or graduate?
0: Oh, um, yes. Graduate, my most interesting course was a course that I made up as a... It was a real course. It was just an independent study, and it was called... A Non-Hippie Theology of Creation Care for Non-Vegetarians.
1: Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds good.
0: I'm glad you asked. Glad, yeah. The the subtitle was Considering the Role of Ox and Orthodox.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Okay. All right, last one. What is your favorite hobby?
0: Oh, um, I collect hobbies for a hobby, so... um, (laughs) Yeah, I've I've done a whole I have an 8-foot unicycle. I like to juggle. Beekeeping probably is the most recent one that I've picked up. I'm thinking homing pigeons, but my wife said with the arrival of the fourth child that I was on a kind of temporary grounded from new hobbies. So, my, Do you ride the unicycle? I do ride the unicycle. Yeah. That was uh very good. I haven't for a little bit, but it's it's in me somewhere. <laughs> Right. Learning to ride a unicycle is like learning to ride a bike. Once you know how to do it, you can still wipe out horrendously. So, <laughs> <it's>, uh...
1: <laughs> All right. Okay, thank you. <laughs> yeah.
0: Thanks for those questions. And actually, those were much easier than the than the football ones. Uh, so I appreciate that. Well, you've come back for another round. And uh, tonight is a topic that um, is important for us to think through as Christians. Certainly as a culture, we're very interested in it. Um, And I'm not entirely sure that we know what we mean when we use the the terminology uh, sometimes. And so what I would like to kind of give as the the general overview is the the theme for tonight is Christianity Matters for Salvation, Mercy, Justice, the Death, and the Resurrection of Jesus. And there's no way I'm going to be able to do justice to all of that uh, within the next half hour, but I want to throw some things out there. I think that would just plant some seeds, hopefully for your continued thought on this. And as I travel around and speak and engage with people who are uh, passionate about the way that the world works or isn't working, um, it occurs to me that justice is a fairly rare commodity. When was the last time that you flipped on the news and your immediate reaction was, oh, that was just? Uh, that was fair. Uh, we, <laughs> that's, that's not usually how we process the world. And uh, from a very little age, I bet I bet you were two years old the first time you said that's not fair. Just a guess. Uh, statistically, that's probably true. And then we live in a time in which people are campaigning for and excited about and seeking uh, love and justice. Everybody wants them. Very few people can define them, but we still want them. <laughs> and uh, there's a great passion and energy about that topic of justice. And so I want to go in through the, through the angle of justice tonight into this conversation um, as we talk about that and to clarify um, I think it's worth us thinking about in a particular way as we look at kind of the cultural hook into this issue. Social justice is often the phrase that's used uh, there, and I think as Christians, there's, there are parts of that we want to affirm deeply, and other parts we want to be a little bit careful about there, because I think that if we're talking about a justice for a society, social justice in that sense, justice for a society, we can absolutely get on board with that, and and fist pump behind that and say, amen. We believe in the goodness of a just society. On the other hand, if we're talking about justice that is constructed by a society, then that is a type of social justice that I'm not so sure what that actually even means, and we don't have very many good historical examples of a society collectively getting together and saying this is what justice should be by our own definition of what seems right to all of us, and then we're able to provide that. Even if we can agree on the definition of it, it's very difficult for us to implement that, and it leads to a lot of anger, it leads to a lot of bitterness, it leads to a lot of protesting, and the things that we see around our uh, country as people are responding to a genuine God-given long, God-giving longing for the right thing to happen. Justice is a real thing. That's not a, it's not a fairy tale. That's something that it's right for us to have a heart to long for that. The question just is, where does that come from? And it seems that there are some pretty significant limits on our human ability to come up with that. And from a Christian perspective, we recognize that there are some limits to the system. Um, and I'm not advocating for anarchy or anything here. I'm just saying let's be realistic about the limits that there are for actual justice to happen in our lifetime. So, for example, um, there are things that we, we, they're just so frequent that we assume that they're normal. But uh, let's say that Eric shoots me and he, and he kills me. Um, What's the punishment for that? Could be death, might be 20 years, depending on the circumstance, how that works out, right? Oftentimes, people get a 20-year sentence is considered life in prison, right? How is it that my life is worth 20 years of his time in jail? Like, what's the, how does the moral math work out on that? Or take any type of uh, societal infringement, and then we put a monetary value on it by fining somebody for a moral infringement, It's like we're assigning a mathematical weight to a moral thing. You see, it's it's difficult. That's kind of the best we can do. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't have punishment for shooting me. I'm all for that. Um, (laughs) But I'm just saying, how do we actually compensate for that? And so what actually happens for us as we're thinking about this as Christians is the things that we do, and this goes back to where is our morality grounded that we talked about Uh, previously, if it's grounded in, in who God is, and then he speaks things and creates things, then those are sacred. They're defined for a certain thing. Human life is sacred. And so the transgression against the sanctity of something that God creates, we have a hard time establishing justice on earth for something that is divinely declared to be sacred. We broke God's rule In a man-made system, we can come up with an approximation for that, and it's right that we do that as a society to try to figure out what's the best way to to mitigate that or to prevent that type of action or behavior. But let's never get under any illusion that even an eye for an eye makes things fair and that that balances it out. Do you see the difference there? We have a a heart for justice, but as a Christian, I see see the infringement as an infringement of something sacred. It's not just that you transgress the law of Pennsylvania when you do that. You've broken the law of God. And we're not going to be able to have uh, the right people on our courts to be able to solve that. It's a problem that goes beyond. And so the, the longing that we have for justice that we were just singing about here, I think you see that expression in our culture where we recognize that there's a pitfall and there's a shortcoming in what it is that we are able to fully expect of ourselves and of each other in this time. Our society is not omniscient. <laughs> it won't be totally just even if we have all the right laws outlined. There are still going to be people who get away with stuff. And so let's recognize what we have as, as good human approximations, things to be continuously worked on, but it would be a super depressing thing if we thought that ultimate justice came from the United States Supreme Court. Um, there's just so much more to that. It's, not, it's a good system, but it's not enough. It's a vision of something so much higher. And so last night we talked about uh, morality, but what about when you're on the receiving end of injustice? But if you sit here, it won't take you too long to think of a time in which somebody did something to you, something happened to you, then the person who did it got away with it. Don't know what the scale that's on, but I'm sure it's happened to you. Um, And you can maybe sometimes, uh, I think, you can can decide whether or not you've forgiven that situation by how you feel about it when you remember it. Um, But there are other times, even when things that were unjust, um, have you ever been part of a conversation or known something that happened to somebody that was so wrong that you almost threw up it was just so literally physically sickening to think that another human could do that to another human and you experience that as a visceral uh, reaction of grief it's it's striking a chord at something that we know that exists within us as humans that this is not the way that this is supposed to be And so it's easy, I think, sometimes people talk about, oh, we live in a victim culture, we like to play the victim game, whoever's the biggest victim has the most power and all of that. In some ways, that does trivialize victimhood a little bit. But there are real victims in this world of real injustices. No matter how much we get ourselves sorted out politically, it's just not going to be there. And so what do we do living in a world like that? I think Jesus knew a lot about this. I mean, he lived in occupied territory. It's a little bit of a bummer when another nation is ruling your nation. Justice is pretty low, and the ability to protest isn't even there. Um, so there's that part of it. And on the flip side, it reminds me of a quote by the comedian Mitch Hedberg who said, I'm opposed to protesting, I just don't know how to show it. Um, <laughs> that we, we wrestle with expressing ourselves in that way. And then, it, and then as we start thinking about salvation in the gospel, one of the, the fascinating um, situations that we find ourselves in, and this is a little bit of a side note, is that there's a difficulty in preaching the gospel in our era because the prerequisite for receiving the gospel is repenting. But if you believe that the problem that you have in your life are all some caused by somebody else, you can't repent for a problem that somebody else caused. So the responsibility isn't mine. It's what somebody else did, and I can't repent on their behalf for the situation that I'm in. And we're very quick to shuffle around and say, well, this is the, where I'm at, but this is because of somebody else. And that's true. Those things do happen. But that's one of the things that, kind of as edgy about Jesus as people come to Jesus and say stuff like, oh, did you hear about this or did you hear about this, you know, the tower that fell on these folks or whatever. And Jesus says, yeah, heard about that. But unless you repent, you too will die. And you're like, well, that's not very sympathetic. That's not warm, fuzzy Jesus, but he always takes it from the other and drills it back into the heart of the individual of thinking about what is it that God wants to do with you. And we as humans are always, what about them? And Jesus is always, well, what about you? and always brings it back in a powerful way. In the, uh, about eight years before Jesus was born, there was an inscription that talked about the, the good news, the gospel of Caesar Augustus, the, literally the same word, the evangelion, the where we get e, the word um, evangelical, gospel, good news, evangelize. The good news of the birth of Caesar Augustus was announced to the whole world. Good news, Caesar Augustus is born. Now, obviously, as Christians, we pick that up, and then a couple years later, the angels were proclaiming uh, good tidings of great, you know, great joy, good news to all men, right? And it was like, well, Caesar Augustus thought that was good news uh, for him to be born, but this is a different type of good news. And it occurred to me that when we start using this idea of who's in charge and, and the goodness of the news and the righteousness that then comes from who the king is, is that the enunciation of a kingdom is not necessarily good news, When Jesus shows up and begins speaking about these things and calling people to repentance, the arrival of a new king is not inherently good news. That's just news. So if I said, hey, good news, Assad is king of Pennsylvania. You'd be like, "Ah." (laughs) that's news, but that's not good news. And so whether or not the news of the arrival of a new king is good or not is completely dependent on the character and the nature of that king. If it's a good king, then it is good news of great joy for all people. And so Jesus steps into this, and Jesus speaks a lot about justice and a lot about what's happening. And we sang a lot about that future tense looking at what it is that he's going to do. But what's fascinating is that before we get to that eternal perspective of that, um, part of what Jesus did in his suffering, and we're going to talk about the salvific part of that, but in 1 Peter chapter 2, there's this interesting little passage where it's saying that when Jesus suffered and we're recognizing that there are systems and situations in which we suffer injustices at the hands of other people and that unfair things are going to happen, and how do we live with that? That there's this little passage here in First Peter chapter 2, verse 21, and here he's talking about submission to masters and rulers and slaves and familial relationships and all sorts of things, and he's recognizing that unjust things are going to happen. And this is what he says, To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his footsteps. You're like, what? Christ set us an example of how we should suffer when there's injustice? That's not a popular idea. And then it says, this is what he did. So that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was in his mouth. So there's a statement of his innocence. He's suffering. Why? Well, he's innocent because it's an injustice that somebody else is doing. And then verse 23, when they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. And then here's the kicker. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. So Jesus being perfectly innocent, you look at what he went through from a human rights violation to a political violation to a justice violation. I mean... If you want a travesty of justice, look at this whole scene of Jesus' life. He's coming to suffer. He had reason to complain, doesn't hurl insults, he doesn't threaten, he doesn't retaliate. What does that mean then? Instead, he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. And so there's a fascinating move there that Jesus is modeling for us of recognizing real brokenness. Man, was he aware of that? But on the other hand, recognizing, hey, there's a higher judge here, and he's going to make this right. And because of my certainty of that, I'm going to step back here and, as Paul said, leave room. <laughs> Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. There is a just God, and this is all going to be okay, and it's not on me. That, mean, that doesn't mean that we just you know, put our blinders off to injustice, but we rest with the comfort of knowing that which we don't get sorted out in our lifetime is still going to get sorted out. The right thing is going to happen. And that's one of the things that I've, I've always wrestled with of, how does that work? And if you look at, or I can just read it to you actually in Matthew chapter 12, um, let me flip there quickly. There's this fascinating little thing where it's talking about the kind of the vision that Isaiah had of God's chosen servant coming and Jesus talking about this being fulfilled about him. And it says here in verse 18 of Matthew chapter 12, here's my servant whom I have chosen, the one... I, the one I love and whom I delight, I will put my spirit on him, and he will proclaim justice to the nations. He will not quarrel quarrel or cry out. No one will hear his voice in the streets or on Twitter. A bruised reed, uh, sorry, I added that part in case you're wondering. That's not in the original Greek manuscript. Um, a bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. And wow, isn't that just a, he'll proclaim justice, and then just that gentle imagery of, I mean, what's more... F- What's more delicate than a bruised reed or a smoldering wick? He doesn't, it's just so, so there's this extreme power, but at the same time, this real just gentleness to it. And then it ends by saying, he won't do that until he leads justice to victory. In his name, the nations will put their hope. And I was uh, preaching on this passage a couple years ago at a church in New York, and there was a couple from Rwanda there. And they came up and talked to me afterward, and were just so deeply blessed and encouraged by the idea of looking at the atrocity of living through a genocide like that in their country, where, the U, I mean, the best that the world had to offer had nothing that could stop or prevent the injustices and the atrocities that they, and for them being Christians and recognizing that God will bring justice to that, in him the nations will put their hope. Uh, this is not the, the gentle, mild man Jesus who is incompetent. Rather, he has a proper perspective of time and how these things work. And so that is a big question for me is how is it that justice works in time until he leads justice to victory? He entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. So he's, he's making a, a deposit on a future coming justice and that modifies the way in which he lives his life. And that then becomes an example for us of how we live with some of these things. And as I think about justice in time, there are two elements to that. One of them being is the recognition that the model that Jesus is giving for us here is that justice delayed is not necessarily justice denied. Just because there's a time gap in there doesn't mean that it doesn't get all ironed out in the end, that God doesn't take care of it. And then the corollary of that would be the second part of this, and we talked about it a little bit last night in the Q&A, is that the delay of justice is necessary for the reality of forgiveness. If God rained down justice on you as soon as you sinned, none of us would probably have made it here tonight. Um, You sin, you're dead. But by delaying that justice, it leaves room for forgiveness and repentance in order for us to come back into the proper relationship with God, for us to get back uh, on side, back in bounds with the trajectory of what it is that God has for reality. And so that delay of justice is necessary for the reality of forgiveness. And you see that um, in a passage like in Second Peter 3, 8, where he's saying, hey, God's not slow in keeping his promises. Everybody's like, well, where is God at? He says, God's not slow in keeping his promises. He's waiting for many more to come to repentance. And so God is delaying his justice in order to give us time to respond and to repent uh, of our sin and respond to his goodness and be forgiven and brought back into relationship with him. And so it's the mercy of a holy God who waits and actually, that is really to our benefit. I think there, you know, whenever injustice happens to me, I want justice to happen immediately. Whenever I'm the unjust one, oh, I'm, well, again, you know, it's, right, you know. Um, but it's the mercy of God to wait and to balance that out. And, and in every big system of thought in the world, this is the question, I think, and this is a good question to ask people who um, maybe you have friends who are part of other religious groups or movements or ideas. I think this question of like, how do you balance mercy and justice? How do you do that correctly? Um, Because it seems like if you have all justice and no mercy, then the whole system is kind of cold and sterile and clinical and harsh. On the other hand, if you have a system where mercy is preferred over justice, then you have a system in which bad people get away with bad things and it's not fair. Now, in James, it does say for us to prioritize mercy over justice because God's going to take care of it. And so we actually have deep pockets that we can actually afford to be taken advantage of because the math is going to work out in the long run. But from God's perspective, how do you do that? How do you balance mercy and justice And every religious system or even um, maybe a secular system has a way of of trying to hold those two things together? How do we balance mercy and justice? And it was the... uh, theologian and preacher john stott in his book the cross of christ who pointed out an interesting concept that in the crucifixion of jesus christ is the only place in history where mercy and justice are not balanced in opposition to each other but they're expressed through he, through each other so the wages of sin is death the fair thing to happen there is that somebody dies God's justice has to be done, but it's the mercy of God that he decides to be the one who takes that upon himself. And so his mercy is displayed through his justice, and his justice is displayed through his mercy simultaneously in the cross of Christ. And that is the phenomenal feature of what is going on there, is that both of those things aren't held in a balance or attention tension with each other, but they're expressed through each other in a way that really makes sense of the justice of God and the mercy of God simultaneously. You have the Old Testament sacrificial system of you sin and it costs you something and God uh, is a God, he's the author of life and sin is the violation of purpose and so when the violation of the purpose of life of which God created things, when there's an infringement upon that, death happens, there's bloodshed because that is not the way it's supposed to be. It's a recognition, it's a cost, it's a payment. Something has to step in and balance it out because God is a God of justice. We see that and then on the other hand, God steps in and takes that himself. It's kind of like the, I mean, you get this, this, that sounds New Testament-y, but it gets started way back, like even in the covenant with uh, God, with Abraham, when they, when they cut the animals in half. Do you remember that one? That's a super weird thing, isn't it? So they go out there, chop the animals in half, split the halves apart, and then uh, Abraham falls into a sleep and God passes through the animals. And if you go look at all the other ancient Near East covenant-making ceremonies to figure out what in the world is going on there, Basically, what they did is say it's two kings are making a treaty or a covenant together. They take some animals, they chop them in half, they put the pieces out there, and both of them walk in between it. And as a statement of that, they're saying, look, if I don't uphold my end of the bargain, this is what you're allowed to do to me. May I die and be split in half. This is the punishment that's ahead of me if I don't uphold my end of the contract. So the kings go through and they've made a covenant. Isn't it interesting, though, that when God does that with Abraham, who goes between the pieces? God does. What's Abraham doing? Sleeping. (laughs) Um, And God passes through almost saying, when the covenant doesn't work, I take the punishment for that. That's way back there. Way back there. And then we see the fullness of that coming to fruition, and God actually playing that out in the life of Jesus, and Christ taking that upon himself. So there's that, that substitution for sin. The wages of sin is death. God made him who knew no sin to be sin that we might become the righteousness of God. There's the transaction in that direction. But then there's also a fullness of this justice element that is important for us in the resurrection. Because it's not just enough for Jesus to have died. He becomes Lord and King. And by his resurrection, it's an affirmation of God's acceptance of who it is that he is. And it's a statement about the defeat of death and Jesus being a conqueror over injustice and death. And Jesus does, if you read through Revelation, Jesus does return with a sword Um, And so it isn't that we don't care about justice in our time, but that our hope isn't in the state, the hope isn't in a socially constructed justice, that our hope is in something much higher than that, something that way transcends that, and it gives us a peace and a stability, even in a broken society. But it's not just that it gives us a peace and a stability, it actually gives us a standard to advocate for. Because for something to be just, the, the term, or righteous in that way, the term righteousness, if you think about it, what does righteousness mean in the Old Testament? Righteousness is conformity to a standard. How was it that you know, Noah was a righteous man? Well, because he conformed to the standard of the covenant that God had laid out. And each of these Old Testament men and women who lived righteous lives were living in conformity with what God had revealed to them. So the, the justice and the righteousness is a, is a statement about meeting a standard that God has for us. And so as the people of God, recognizing, footnote everything from last night, what the character of God is like and what the standard of perfection that he's calling us to and the possibility of justice, that is a wonderful thing. That's the trajectory we're shooting for. We're shooting for a high bar. And so we do live our lives in a way that we're deeply interested in what is just and right, but we at the same time don't sink all of our hope into the things of this world. And so we have to, on one hand, say, okay, well, there's a justice, and I'm glad that justice is happening. On the other hand, we have to, probably should, slow down just a little bit and think about when God meets out that justice, when the delayed justice actually finally comes, what's that going to look like for me? Because we're always thinking, well, it's the other people that God needs to sort out. It's not me. And if anything, Jesus calls us back again to that. Well, what about you? What about when justice happens? And it's fascinating as you go through the Uh, Some of Paul's later writings in different places in the New Testament after the Gospels, when they talk about the return of God and justice being rained down, and it talks about everyone having to stand and give an account of every word that they've spoken and that this coming judgment is there, almost without fail, there's that type of passage. There's the coming judgment of God. This is what's going to happen. You're going to stand before your maker and give an account of your life. And then like the next sentence or two usually is something like, therefore, preach the gospel." So it's in light of the fact that we know justice is coming that we're reminded of our own need for salvation and for the need of salvation of the rest of the world around us because we're dealing with a holy God who's consistently holy. It's not just like, oh, now I'm a person of God, and so justice doesn't apply to me. No, it applies to all of us. And the Old Testament unsettles us because when we start looking at this concept of the holiness and the justice of God, that doesn't seem to match always in the way that we would like it to. Um, for example, let me read to you just a little bit here out of uh, 1 Chronicles 13. This is a, a well-known story. This is when um, David and all of Israel decide to move the ark. So David is just rising to power here. It's a time of phenomenal celebration in the people of Israel. And David confers with each of his officers and the commanders of the thousands, the commanders of hundreds. So all the military generals are on board with this. They think it's a great idea. Um, David sends out messages to the whole assembly of Israel and says, hey, if it seems good to you, and if it's the will of the Lord our God, let's send word. And there's a big old party. They get everybody together. An incredible celebration down in verse um, 4. The whole assembly agreed to do this because it seemed right to the people. There's, they're socially constructed what the right thing to do is here. Um, and, of course, the Ark of the Covenant being the place where God's holiness is abiding. That's his his footstool in this world. And so they get everybody together, big party in verse 7. And they move the ark of God from Benadab's house on a new cart with Uzzah and Ahio guiding. And David and all the Israelites were celebrating with all their might before God with songs and harps and lyres and tambourines and cymbals and trumpets. Could you imagine that? A national revival, a new leader that had like 100% of the vote and the confidence of the people. All the military leadership, all the religious people, all the people thought this was a great idea. There's dancing in the streets. They're celebrating. This is a good old time happening right here. Until. Verse 9. When they came to the threshing floor of Kiddon, Uzzah reached out his hand to steady the ark because the oxen stumbled. And the Lord's anger burned against Uzzah and he struck him down because he had put his hand on the ark. So he died there before God. You want to talk about killing a party? <laughs> then David was angry because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah. And to this day, that place is called Perez And David was afraid of God that day and asked, how can I ever bring the ark to me? And he left it there. Everybody thought this is a great idea. And you're like, what's wrong with God? I mean, he was trying to be helpful. The oxen stumbled. He was trying to do the right thing. stuck his hand into the nuclear actor of God's presence. I don't know that it was God that hated him. It's just that a human isn't made to withstand the presence of God like that. That's not how we were created. I think, uh, I like the line Dallas Willard used one time. He said, I am fully convinced that God will let everyone into heaven who can stand it. You don't jump in front of a truck. You don't waltz into the presence of God. You don't stick your hand into the manifest presence of his reality on earth without consequences. Even if all the military generals and the leader of your country and everybody, it all seemed right to all the people. Now, was God being overly harsh here? Well, you know, you know what's fascinating? They forgot to do a whole lot of really important stuff in that maneuver. And if you flip over two chapters, they give it another round in chapter 15, chapter um, 15 then David makes a different speech because they're going to try this one more time. And he says in verse two, no one but the Levites may carry the ark of God because the Lord chose them to carry the ark. The ark was never supposed to be on a cart, certainly not hooked to an ox. It was supposed to be carried on poles on the shoulders of the Levites who were consecrated. There is extreme precision of God's revelation of the proper way to do this kind of thing. And so you can read about all of the um, uh, care that was taken to do it. Then over in verse um. 13, we did not inquire of him about how to do this in the prescribed way. That's what David is saying has gone wrong. But it's funny, even back in 13, they say, if it sounds good to the people and if it's, and if it's the will of God, we're going to do it. Hey, that sounds good. Let's go for it. But they never actually checked to see if it was the will of God in doing it. They gave lip service to the idea, but there was a little bit of a back off. Hang on a second. There's a prescribed way that God has given us to do this. And so what God had revealed and what God had written was the safe way again, not for anger at the people, but for a safety of a proper interaction with him, and so you have that that holy presence of God. That's a common theme throughout the Old Testament. This is just one that pops into my mind of of somebody reaching out their hand and, and sticking it into the presence of God and dying for it because he wasn't worthy. And the whole system, even though it seemed good to the people, was messed up. You take that and then compare it with. Um, Well, the story in, you know this one. So the guy comes to Jesus, says, hey, my daughter has just died, but if you come and put your hand on her, reaching out the hand, if you come and put your hand on her, she'll live. And while he's going to that, a woman in the crowd, remember this, the woman who's been bleeding for 12 years, says to herself, if only I just touched the fringe of his garment. How does that work? Uzzah reaches out and touches the ark and dies. And here a woman comes up behind Jesus God was pleased to have his fullness dwell in him. Reaches out and touches Jesus and what happens to her? Why did she not die like that? Same God. Reaching out her hand into it and Jesus does go and put his hand on the, the child but that, that that theme there in all of those stories is the, is the reaching out the hand and the touching and And God, in his mercy, manifesting himself in the person of Jesus in a way that we could communicate with and not die. Of restraining himself, of binding and coming for the other, and she was. And he blesses her and calls her daughter and says, your faith has healed you because you understand the type of power that you are touching. It's a holy God, same holy God, all throughout this, but Jesus steps aside from that grandiosity and makes it possible for us to come into the presence of God. That's not just true for a woman 2,000 years ago. That's the offer that's for us. Is how do you approach this holy God? And and, and I think David has it right. He says, well, how am I ever going to bring the ark to me? Well, you don't bring God to you. You go to God. And he makes a way for that to happen. And so even in the life of Jesus, he's leading up to the, the, the finality, the totality of what's going on there um, because how do we hold that all together? And, it's, and I think that's the, the big question is that so much of, and a lot of the young people that I speak with on college campuses who grew up in the church wrestle with this of saying, you know... Uh, we, you know, uh, it's fun to go and we sing these praise songs about God's love and the sloppy wet kiss and all of this. And, and they're like, but then we, I just started reading the Old Testament and that it's hard for me to fit the, the justice and holiness of God into the love and mercy of God. It doesn't seem like that is compatible within that umbrella. And I think the subtle reminder here, both in the life and the teaching of Jesus and certainly all that we get from the Old Testament is that when we get glimpses of the heavenly vision The angels are singing holy, holy, holy. They're not singing lovely, lovely, lovely. God is love, but love and justice are a derivative of his holiness. You can't fit his holiness and his justice into the concept of his inherent nature as being loving. They all have to come together, and they flow from each other. And so there's a sense in which God maintains his justice, he maintains his holiness, he maintains his perfection, he expresses himself in his love, he expresses himself mercifully and does so in a way that makes sense of all of this and gets this to all work out. Think about the transition here um, that happens, actually let me read to you from uh, Romans chapter three. I think this is the, the, the key verse to what is actually happening in all of Romans um, In this preamble here, I just want to read you five verses here from Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 21. Because I think this is important for us to get the the fullness of what it is that God is doing as he's inviting us into relationship with himself. So here, verse 21, but now a righteousness from God. Okay, let's just stop here a second. Where does the righteousness come from? From God. But now a righteousness from God, apart from the law. Is is this righteousness based off the Old Testament? No. No. Righteousness from God, apart from the law, has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. And this is what's cool about this. In no way do we reject the Old Testament. It's just that I take the Old Testament so serious that when the Old Testament says something else is coming and then that thing comes, I believe what the Old Testament said about it. it is a, it's not a totally new and unheard of thing, but we're moving into something else here. A righteousness apart from the law that was testified to by the law and the prophets. They're crucial for understanding who God is and how he operates in the world, but they themselves point to something else that is coming, to which the law and prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, and there is no difference, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And that's what we were talking about last night. We're all in this together. But then it goes on from there, right? And are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice. Because in his forbearance, he had left sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did this to demonstrate his justice at the present time, so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in him. This was God's plan all along. He had a system for this. This is the gospel that we preach, that Christ died for our sins according to the scripture. It wasn't a plan B, it wasn't a surprise. God foresaw it coming that he died, that he was buried, really dead, not faking it, and that he was raised from the dead according to the scriptures. God raised him with power. I think that as we start to think about how it is that we fit into that, what's the what's the What's the definition, then, of salvation as it relates to this? And I like a little line by a theologian named John Jefferson Davis. And he says this, that if you want a definition of salvation that reaches across all religious systems, it would be this, that salvation is when your true identity is in proper relationship with ultimate reality. Salvation is when your true identity is in proper relationship with ultimate reality. Now, as a Christian, you can fill in those blanks pretty clearly. Your true identity, you're made in the image of God, you're created to be a child of God. Proper relationship with ultimate reality, ultimate reality is personal. It is God the Father, expressed and made known to us through the person of Jesus Christ. That, that spirit precedes matter from a Christian and Jewish point of view. That is ultimate reality. And that the goal there is for the proper interface and the proper relationship between who you are and who God is. And that's the whole question that Jesus is partly, part of the question that Jesus is answering for us is what is that proper relationship? How does that work? And the simplest version of that that I can make it is here you have the the God of the Old Testament, the God who's the same across all Testaments, who is perfect. We don't have to tell people that they're bad in order for them to see that they need to repent. They just need to be reminded, as they probably know, that they're not perfect. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's a pretty high standard of, it's a pretty high bar to shoot for. And so here you have a perfect God, and here you have an imperfect Nathan. You can put yourself in here if you're imperfect like me. Um, and most of the systems of the world say, you know what? Here's a good God, here's us, and I just need to do these eight things, these five things, these 16, check the box, and I work myself up here, and then God looks over and says, hey, Rittenhouse, great beard, you're perfect. Come on over. Um, And you read the story of Uzzah and the God of the Old Testament and the justice of the God of Jacob and you're like, (laughs) really? You're going to perfect yourself enough that, yeah, it's the problem of perfection. How does that which is perfect come into relationship with that which is imperfect and still maintain its definition of of perfection? You can't take a perfect solution and add an impurity to it and it still be perfect. And so, What Christ does, the Christian understanding of this, is the only way that that which is imperfect can come into relationship with that which is perfect is if that which is perfect does something to perfect that which is imperfect to enable that relationship to happen. And that's the death of Christ. That's the invitation that we're invited into to say, you know what, I'm going to give up trying to save myself, a righteousness apart from the law, apart from my good ideas, that I'm going to throw myself at the mercy of God and say, I don't even know all the details of how it is exactly that you do it, But I do know that if there's any hope for me, it's in you. It's based off of the faithfulness of Jesus to the task that God had for him. That is the thing that saves me. I am with him. Repent and be baptized. New birth. It's a good analogy. It's a good reality. That God would willingly perfect us in order to put us back into relationship with him that the things in this world that we see that aren't the way they're supposed to be, we feel that way because they actually aren't the way they're supposed to be. It's a call to us. It's a wake-up call. It's a a hunger and a longing of the human heart that God would put us back in relationship with himself. And you know what? It's not just that God would put us um, back in relationship with himself. Let me find this passage here. Um, In... In that 2 Peter 3 passage where I talked about God not being slow and keeping his promises. He's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but wanting everyone to come to repentance. It goes on and it says, but in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. That's actually social justice right there. When you're at home with righteousness and the earth is restored and renewed And so it isn't just a pie in the sky, warm, fuzzy. There is an emotional response to what it is that God does in it. But it's a legitimate hope for the future. And that's where we're going tomorrow night to look at the fullness of what eternity means, but also the way that it impacts our lives. But that is the simple thing of a holy God creating you to be in relationship with himself, us being knuckleheads, and God saying, I'm going to walk through. I bear the cost. This is on me. And because I'm just, there must be a punishment, but because I'm merciful... I'll take the fall. And because I'm powerful, by the way, I'll rise from the dead and conquer everything in the end and be victorious. Whip out your sword, huzzah, winning team. There's that part of it, that's there too. And so the invitation to become a Christian is an invitation to line up behind that type of a king. When we make the statement, Jesus is Lord, it's not a cute thing, That's a, it's a, a declaration of this is the direction I'm choosing to go and I'm casting myself on the care of God recognizing that he is the one who does the good things in this world. Every good gift comes down from him. In creation, who who does it? God does it. Who helps him? Nobody. He does it. In your salvation, who does it? God does it. Do you do it? No. God does it. That's kind of a repeated theme throughout Scripture, if you haven't caught on to that yet, that God is the one who does the doing. We respond to that most certainly, and Jesus gives legitimate invitations, and people legitimately reject that. But the offer is there because the heart of God is expressed in the person of Jesus who longs for you to know the fullness and the freedom and the satisfaction and be restored into the proper relationship with your Heavenly Father. And that changes everything in our lives, including the way that we handle and advocate for the injustice in the world around us. Amen. Well, as has been our custom, we're going to flip it over to you guys now. And uh, Eric has the microphone, and we'll take some questions here for a few minutes.
1: We're completely educated now, huh? <laughs> okay, I have a question then. I'll get yeah. started. Um, men's Bible study this morning, we were reading Psalm 79. And uh, Psalm 79 is kind of a cry for God to um, judge the mm-hmm. other nations. Um, and, and there's an interesting passage here. We were talking about this this morning. and I wondered how, what you would think about this. There seems to be this I think this spills out into into our lives too. There's this desire for God to judge people to keep his own reputation. Hmm. Like we seem concerned about God not dealing with sin because other people are going to think that he's not really God because he's not really dealing with sin. So like in Psalm 79, 10, the writer says, why should the nation say, where is their God? That there be known among the nations in our sight the avenging of the blood of your servant, which has been shed. So it's like if you don't, if you don't take care of this, people are going to be asking, where, well, where is, your, where is yeah. your God? And so I think there's this sense where often as Christians even we look at it and it's like, well, God, if you don't kill these people or if you don't punish these people, then you don't have the right reputation reputation. I mean, could you speak yeah. to that a little bit? Well,
0: I think there, there are two sides to that. One is that I think, and C.S. Lewis is big on this, of looking at the Psalms as a helpful way. He's like, we're, actually, we're fairly apathetic. We aren't angry enough about injustice and brokenness and sin. When you read the Psalms, there is real real emotional anger there about that. And then on the God side of it, though, I think that, that whole idea of Jesus suffering and not retaliating and hurling his sins think about that of Jesus asking God to forgive the people who are killing him. Stephen asking the same thing. And so, uh, man, is that not fascinating that you would ask God, don't kill these people. Keep them alive long enough that they could come to know who you are. Um, That seems to be the, the heart shift that is modeled for us in the person of Christ. And so I think, yeah, we have that longing of like, come on, God, this would be a great opportunity for you to show up and make your name known and then... That 2 Peter 3. God's not slow in keeping his promises, but he's waiting. And so it's a, a statement of the mercy of God. Um, but that's a hard thing to communicate of saying, I have a confidence that justice is going to happen, even though God doesn't do it right now. It's a, it's part of his mercy, not a lack of his justice. Does that?
1: Yeah. And isn't it true that really people would want to know probably more about our God if they saw a reaction of us like Stephen? Yeah. Um, which maybe Saul of Tarsus wanted to know more about that God um, at some point. Yeah, there. so
0: I, but I think if you take that to its logical conclusion, then you start to look really weird. So, um, yeah, so a, a for, peculiar people, a perhaps. Peculiar, yeah. yeah, so I have a I have an agreement with my brothers um, that if somebody ever kills me for preaching or whatever, wherever I am in the world, that my brother Ben will hunt them down and offer them forgiveness in the name of Jesus. And share the gospel with them. And if they kill him, then my brother Abe goes. Now, there are some problems there if they kill me. But um, other than that, <laughs> um, you know, it's a. And they said they'd do that. But that's, that's placing our, our hope in the justice and the mercy of God someplace else, also saying, you know what? If we're serious about what it is that Jesus is asking of us, there are situations in which it would be better for me to die and somebody else have the opportunity. know what I know than for me to live and then not know that. Um, So I'm saying this concept of the delay of justice and mercy and the reality of forgiveness, uh, that's easy to say sitting here, Um, but I think thinking strategically in those directions of what does that actually really mean, um, yeah, that would be a peculiar thing to have happen. Um, But I think that's what we see modeled in, man, again, it's that. That indwelling of the spirit that we talked about of Stephen, you're you, you getting your head smashed in with rocks in the street, and you're concerned about the people who are doing that to you. Where does that come from? Where does that come from? And so that's a... Uh, uh, and and we, I mean, we, we know this. You, you see the, the, the Church of the Brethren Pastor who just got executed in Nigeria. I mean, you see this time and time again of people placing their hope in another system. and I mean, he's going to get killed. And he's not pleading for his life. He's saying, you know, if this happens, that'll be bad. hope it doesn't. God will take care of whatever. Um, man, that is a shocker to the world of what is wrong with those people in a right way. Um, I want some of whatever that guy has. Um, and to recognize, um, I think that those are just such humbling things. It's, I mean, it, it brings us in worship of like, God, I can't pull that off but I know you do that in the lives of other people and have mercy on me. Would you, would you use me in that same way? Um, so yeah, I think it's a... Uh... Tozer said that glory demands submission to mystery. And I kind of like that idea. Glory demands submission to mystery. The things that are glorious are also mysterious. That doesn't mean that they're not true. My friend Cameron says that, uh, that something mysterious is an unexplored fact. It's true, but you haven't seen the bottom of it yet. And so if glory demands submission to mystery, there are things that when we really just get up to the face of it, I, I, I kind of uh, I liken it to trying to, like, could you hug this church building? You know, you can't get your arms around it, but you can, you can have an experience with that wall, right? I mean, but you can't get around it. And there are things about the mercy and the justice of God that are like that, that we can touch it and experience it, but we can't get our, our hands around it in a, in a meaningful way. So we, we, know, we know that it's good, and we're there and experience with it, but uh, now we see poorly As in a yeah in a mirror, Um, then we shall see you know then we shall know fully even as we're fully known and so there there are are touch points here where I think God gives us enough interface and interaction there for us to really legitimately long for um, what it is that He has in store and that really does change the way that we experience things in our lives even now. But again, yeah, I think the Psalms are so helpful. (laughs)
2: I have my microphone on. Oh, look at that. That's handy. Yeah. <laughs> I have a question. Yeah. Um, salvation, the, the salvation theology around salvation is, is fairly complex, yet we, as a children's pastor, I I want to share that with, with kids. Yeah. Um, and so I'm curious, uh, from your perspective, what... What are the main touch points that children should understand foundationally around salvation? Because it, it is it is a very complex yeah. thing, and so I I I'm never confident that I'm <laughs> doing a very good job. Yeah, what do they really understand? Mm-hmm. What's what are the most important things that a child should walk walk up through their childhood mm-hmm. as they come to Sunday school understanding? Yeah, it.
0: that's that's very practical question for me trying to raise my children too of how to to balance that out and what does that mean and and oftentimes they'll protest and say well we are christians um you know um you're like what does what does that mean um when you're that age and so there there are two things that i i ask them um one is i say what does jesus say and they say come follow me that's what jesus says but that's not what saves us that's a that's an invitation into continuing to explore his life and in that passage that I read in Romans chapter 3, different translations translate it in different ways of saying, um, for all those who believe, um, who have faith in Jesus, but other translations say, because of the faithfulness of Jesus. And so it's the faithfulness of Jesus that's, it's, for me it's kind of like, how was Abraham saved? Well, he believed that God would fulfill his promises and it was credited to him as righteousness, Did Abraham have a clue how God was actually going to do that? No, but he knew that God was going to be the one who did it. Um, And so for me, with myself, (laughs) with people with maybe mental disabilities, with little children, I think the foundational thing to know is that God is good, and he's the one who does the saving, and I can trust him with my life. And at that, at that, so living on the other side of the cross, we see the way in which God fulfilled his promise. We're saved by the, the exact same fact, is because of the faithfulness of Jesus to the task that God had for him and our confidence that he will be the one who does the doing that restores all things. Um, and so I guess there are different ways in which we would articulate that to children, but I think that's the, um, that's the entry point into the funnel, as it were, that will continue to get bigger as we, as we go and as we grow. Um, that God's the one who does it, and I can trust him. Um, just looking at the world and what needs to happen, that I, I don't know always how he's going to do it, but I do know that he's good and that he can do it and that he has made a way and that I'm part of that and that he He loves and cares for me. Um, that's, that's good for me. <laughs> it's good for children. It's good for all of us to know that God is the one who does the doing and it's made known to us. His heart is made known to us in the person of Jesus and we see the extent to which he has gone through that. So there's, there's so much into that, um, but I would say that's the, the truncated part of that. Saturday morning, we have a men's prayer group, and um, my grandpa was praying, and he was reflecting on how interesting it is to watch little kids um, pretend like they're grown-ups. It's fun to watch a little kid pretend like they're grown up, isn't it? Because you learn a lot about what it is that they're observing in your life um, and then how they're acting like they're pretending they're married or whatever and, you know, making dinner and all this kind of stuff that they do. Um, and we, we laugh at that because they're, they're seeing something bigger and they're trying to replicate that. But on the other hand, they have no idea what it's like to be married. <laughs> they have no idea what it's like to have a job. They have no idea what it's like to, you know. Um, but we, we smile upon that. And so my grandpa was praying, Father, would you smile upon us as we bumble about in our faith, like little children, approximating the best we can of what it is that you have for us, but also knowing full well we haven't seen the fullness of the the grandeur of the picture. Um, And so, yeah, I've been thinking about that. What does it mean unless you become like a little child? What does the little child know? It knows that its protection and its provision comes from something outside of itself, Um, and that's a, a source of great stability in their lives when they have that, and it's a great source of stability for us when we have that spiritually in our lives too of knowing that god's going to take care of this and my hope is in him um well we were, it was, it was the last night we were joking we sing the hymn you know my hope is built on nothing less than jesus blood and righteousness and the stock exchange and what's happening in iran you know that's not how that hymn goes um <laughs> my, my hope is built on nothing less so it's it's in christ um you know it's, it's it's that story of like you know the the sunday school teacher that asked the little kid you know what's gray and has a fuzzy tail and he says well it sounds like a squirrel but I better say Jesus um, you know that's <laughs> no, a squirrel but uh, there, there is a sense in which there, that um, it comes back to yeah it's, it's in Christ Jesus is the one who's going to do it I recognize him my sheep know, know uh, my voice and so I think you don't have to be a very big little person to be able to know the voice of Jesus um, and there there's a way in which I think some of what I'm trying to do <laughs> prayerfully um, is, is so I think it's, it's kind of like starting a fire, right? You, you have your, your tender and your kindling and then the wood stacked around it. And in Christian education, I'm, I'm doing the best that I can to construct that, but unless God breathes into it and lights it, um, it's going nowhere. On the other hand, I do have a role and a responsibility as a, as a parent and a teacher of little kids to per, put, give them as much information as they possibly can have so that when the spark is lit and the penny drops, they have what they need. And sometimes that, if you look at people's lives, that doesn't happen to way down the line. But the verses that are memorized and the formation that's happened there is the wood that is drying and curing, and God breathes into that. And so that's, um, yeah, that's, that's something that I think we do the best that we can. But again, even in that, we recognize that it's God who does that. And so we try to be faithful stewards of that um, and, and entrust it to him. I'll ask you for the real answer to that later. Yeah, here and then, then
2: over there. This isn't a complex question, but I'm curious. If you could pull, choose one book out of the Old Testament, what would it be and why?
0: Yeah, that's a... Um, I have a one in 39 chance of getting this right. Um, what would I pick? Um, you know, I, I, I would go with Genesis because I think that's the, the, the actually more of God's purpose of his power of the, the setup of his plan um, is, is laid out for us in his creation and in his redemptive work in the way in which he makes covenants with Abraham um, and gets things going for the nation of Israel there's so much that if we don't understand about that, that really the the work of Christ doesn't make as much sense of that. So I think um, starting with the beginning would be a good way to do that. Some, somebody's pocket is disagreeing with me.
2: So I've been struggling with something for a while, um, and last night it kind of came up uh, you made the comment, and I can't remember what the fourth word was, but um, the struggle between hospitality and safety uh-huh. and comfort, and I don't remember. Service, I think. Service, okay. So um, our church, along with many other churches, have uh, adopted a, uh, a way to keep us secure on Sundays yeah. and other days. And I just kind of, <clears throat> sorry, I get confused at how we should do that and still be hospitable. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, and sorry, I cut you that's off for that. Yeah, so I, I think the line from Jesus that's germane here is when he says, be wise as serpents and innocent as doves, right? And so I don't, uh, yeah, I think there's a, a way to be wise that, um, that isn't exclusive, but it is careful. Um, and so, yeah, there are... Um, What you have here is a pretty soft version of what a lot of other churches have in other parts of the places that I almost feel uncomfortable uh, speaking at because I'm like, nothing quite says welcome like a couple armed guards. Um, So, yeah, so I think there's a real balance there, but that comes back to the decisions that you make as a community of how vulnerable do we need to make ourselves in order to really reach the hurting um, and what are the... um, yeah, I stopped in the middle of the night one time to help somebody. I was with a friend, and the car was pulled over. And I stopped, and I was like, I'm going to see if I can help them out. And they're like, that could be dangerous. I'm like, yep, could be. Probably not, though. Uh, and so I can't take the statistics of what could be to not do the, the helpful thing at that time. And so I think, um, yes, we can be wise, and we can have protocols and just simple things that I think. Um, there were times when Jesus looked at the situation and was like, yeah, I think I'll leave. Um, and he did because he knew it was in the hearts of men. So I think there's that wisdom there that we're innocent on our part. We do the best that we can um, to be good stewards of everything that we have from our buildings to our bodies and our families. But on the other hand, we can't set them on a pedestal above uh, or, or gamble them against hypotheticals uh, that would detract from us really following Jesus. And so that's, all of us have to kind of sort that out, I think, um, and it's a really good question. Thanks for asking it.
3: I just have uh, two things to speak to in regards to what you're talking about. Um, I don't know if you realize this or not, but uh, I don't remember where it was, but there was an Amish church where somebody went in and shot up the church. And the families of the people within that church would not, they would not prosecute the person that came in and murdered the people in their church they refused to mm-hmm. um, they gave complete forgiveness, which is a huge <laughs> it 's a huge testimony to who what God is period, <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. regardless of faith <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and another thing is and this I would recommend to anybody that has a teenager, the movie i 'm not ashamed." When the girl from Columbine is faced with the question, do you believe in your God? And she says, yes. And then the person pulls the trigger and says, now you're going to meet him. Yeah. So,
0: yeah, you're speaking to very, I mean, that's, the gospel is not hypothetical about hypothetical situations. It's about real life. Uh, You wouldn't get up and read scripture if you didn't think it didn't describe reality. it it talks about the world the way that it really is and it's it's those types of examples where we see oh actually people aren't doing this just because it's comfortable and convenient but because it's real and so yeah the nickel creek incident is there and what's fascinating about that is um i was in england someplace and somebody asked an anglican priest whether or not um christians are violent and he said oh no look what the amish did in the school shooting i thought well pretty far removed from <laughs> our side of the ocean, but um, it's almost like that that makes sense to people of like actually if we're consistent about the, the logical conclusion and trajectory of that, then we would see more of that. Um, and it's, it's true even back, uh, you had the, the you know, the, you can offer sacrifice to the Roman God or you can die. You can say, Kaiser, Caesar is Lord, Kaiser, Curios And then we go up and say, Christos, kyrios Christ is Lord. Next. Um, And the church grew like crazy that way. Um, That's not a great marketing campaign, really, of like, hey, sign up for this and get your head chopped off. Um, But it showed that people were serious. I mean, look at the life of the apostle Paul. How did he plant churches? Step one, get the pulp beat out of you. Step two, preach the gospel. You know, it's um, the, the invitation of what it is that God calls us to as we kind of confront that, like, well, that might be stupid. It's the it was the missionary who got killed just a couple a year or so ago, and he's like, "Yeah, I might get killed and he did that's that's not a travesty. He knew what the risk was, calculated it, and paid it um, and again, that goes back to how does our concept of death play into our ethical decision making um, that's tough stuff, and so I think i mean the invitation of salvation is there but jesus on the other hand luke 14 is count the cost right um and so yeah i think the last couple hundred years in america have been a, a bit of a blip of the abnormal in what it means to follow jesus um and that's that's part of what i live with and um and you do too of thinking well <laughs> how do we make hay while the sun shines like you know well, what's the worst that's going to happen to you for being a Christian in the United States right now? Somebody's going to block you on Twitter or laugh at you? Um, you know, uh, not to say that real things don't happen, but let's, um, yeah, let's have our eyes wide open. And I think that's part of what Paul says, right? Fix your mind on things above, where Christ is seated. He has a, he has a, a position of authority. And you know what? Um, back to the psalm question that Eric asked in, is it... Um, where is it, in Revelation 5 or 9, where he sees the vision of the the souls of the martyrs under the altar, and they're crying out, how long, O Lord, until? And so there's a vision there of (laughs) they got killed for their faith, they're in the presence of God, but they're awaiting a final judgment. They're awaiting the restoration of all things. So they're in a good place, but there's still that longing of them of how long, O Lord, until you avenge? And He says, not yet, wait a little bit longer. The number isn't at its fullness, um, and so even, even in the presence of God is that sense of um, it's coming. Uh, the hammer's going to drop. Christ returns on the horse with the sword. Um, and we want to be the people who go out to meet him and are part of, of our allegiances to him and not in rebellion to him. So those are, those are connected. To the back
1: corner. All right. One, oh, we have two. It, are these the two. last two? Is yeah, that, these need to be the last two for sure.
0: I'll try to answer quickly. <laughs> Hasn't been my style. <laughs> Ask a long question and I'll give a short answer.
4: Perhaps this can be quick because it's not a question. <laughs> <laughs> it's an observation mm. on the nickel mines. Oh, yep. And to talk just a bit about why the Amish people insisted on forgiving.
0: Mm-hmm.
4: They were taught, as I was taught, that when you say the Lord's Prayer, you ask to be forgiven as you forgive others. And then Jesus immediately afterwards said, If you don't forgive other people, their fallen heaven won't forgive you. Mm-hmm. And they really believed that. We believed that. Yeah. If, it was in the, if it was in the Sermon on the Mount, that's it. We, we grab on that and we follow that. Another thing about nickel mines, uh, Jeff Boff from, from E-Town, from the uh, Young Center, uh, Young Center was, was actually off in Japan. And what he took along was his little information about nickel mines and about the Amish mm-hmm. and the people in Japan, the ones that weren't Christians, were totally astounded yeah. by the fact that they could forgive. Mm-hmm. So I, I think we need to remember why, in fact, the Amish was serious about forgiving. It's because they...
0: It's because they, Jesus they, is serious about forgiving.
4: Yeah, and if they, if they believe if they don't forgive, God won't forgive them. Yeah. See, that was pretty short from you, wasn't it?
0: Yeah, it was great. Yeah, thank you. But one other part of that, though, is I think you also see the value of a community also, that um, there's a way in which functioning as a community and not as an individual stabilizes us in some of the chaos we face in life.
4: Yeah, yeah just for clarification, I don't think I heard you say that uh, That we're somehow comforted that God is going to take vengeance Hmm. Um, where, where, where are we with that? Should we be comforted that God is going to take vengeance?
0: I'm not. Yeah, that's a, a tricky one. Reading the Psalms is like smash the heads of the babies. I mean, that's a, that seems to be there. But I think uh, what Jesus offers us is a, an ability to, it's, it's not just that he prayed, Father, forgive them. It's Father, forgive them they don't know what they're doing. And so I think that is where it um, where it shifts for us, is in that second part of that, because they don't know what they're doing. And so I think we can desperately, come Lord Jesus, we're longing for justice to happen on the earth, but it's a, a different thing um, to, but on the other hand, you have those like uh, in Romans 12, in doing so, you'll keep burning coals on their head kind of thing, right? Where they're... They're getting what's coming to them. Um, And so I don't know how you'll work that out in every situation in your life of, yes, that the people that uh, perpetuate an injustice against you will have to face a holy God for that action. And then how do we feel about that? Um, I think if we look at the perspective of eternity, we ask that God would give us the grace to see things from from his perspective um, and that we could, uh, in time, hope that God would forgive them. Um, So, yeah, I don't... It's hard for me to envision Jesus being God doesn't delight in the death of the wicked. And we know that, and so I don't, I don't, I don't see a model in the life and the teaching of Jesus of allowing that to kind of be a little <laughs> you just be wait kind of thing. That it's a, a deeper heart of compassion even for those um, who are our enemies, because that is uh, reflective of how God himself treats other people, and that's a that's a high calling for us too. There, uh, so I think we have to live live with that understanding that the vision of what it is that God has for us is to forgive as I have forgiven you. And that's not for a a willful or a bitter or a, a hoping evil upon the head of the other, but really to see the fullness of God's mercy, knowing that justice will happen, stabilizes us in those situations. But that's a good question. I think probably depending on where we are in the grief cycle and the forgiveness cycle, we might oscillate back and forth between some of those feelings. Well, once again, we've run it to the end of the hour and a half. So we'll have um, our music leaders come up and, and um, lead us in a song of reflection. And, and hopefully as we sing this, there will be things there that we can really celebrate um, as, a, as a heartfelt expression of where we're at with God. Maybe there are things we need to confess. Maybe there are things we need to rededicate. Maybe there are people that we need to forgive. But in all of those things, our hope is in Christ And he's the one who's going to do the doing. And it's a great comfort uh, for me to know that the truth is in the capable hands of God and that the future is in the capable hands of God and that that has been made known to us in the person of Jesus Christ. Amen.